Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. We're going to read chapter 11 and chapter 12 because this is the hinge of the book where there's a change of topic. And I'm going to, although ordinarily I would read the text and then comment through it, what I'm going to do is comment through as we're reading and then talk in more depth about the closing out of chapter 11. So, Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people, whom He foreknew. Or do you not know that the Scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given to them, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their backs always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Okay, so we've talked about the falling away of the Jews as a visible people, but that there are individuals who are a remnant. The falling away of the Jews as a visible people, the rejection of Christ, is to bring riches to the Gentiles. The riches of the Gospel. The, The ordinances of God and the oracles of God. For I speak to you Gentiles, forgive me, going back to verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So the idea that the Gentiles are being brought to God, the nations are being brought to God, right? every nation except for the Jews, being brought to God so that the Jews will come to God as a nation. The failure of the Jews was riches for the Gentiles. The Jews will be brought to fullness. And the fullness of the Jews will be even greater riches for the Gentiles. You see that? Paul's saying that? 
For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciliation of the world, like the world being another way of talking about the nations, right? You have the nation versus the world, the nations. And the nations are being brought in. The world is being brought in. Does that mean every single individual? It does not. When John 3, 16 talks about God loving the world, it's not talking about every single individual. It's talking about world in the same sense that Paul's using it here. The idea of the nations. Not just the nation, the nations. So the nations being brought in. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So this resurrection, the idea that there's a riches that goes to the Gentiles, and then there's when the Jews have a an acceptance of Christ, it will be like a resurrection from the dead of the world. Verse 16, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The, the first fruit is the idea that the first part in this, the beginning of the thing, which points to the idea of source, and also root points to the idea of source. So if the source is holy, then the thing generated is holy. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, the olive tree here, okay, this is the visible church. We have the nation of the Jews being taken out of the visible church, and we have nations being put on to the visible church. And so these nations that are being put onto, into the visible church, they are being nourished by the root. They are being, they are holy in their association with the first fruits. Now the firstborn of creation, the first fruits from the dead, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The root of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the fountain and the head. And so he gives gifts to the visible church. Now, you're familiar with Judas. Judas was in the visible church. Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas hung himself. And of him, the Lord said, it would be better for him had he never been born. Judas was not elect. Judas was not saved. Judas did not believe but Judas cast out demons and Judas prophesied. Judas was an apostle. An apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of the visible church. A part of the foundation of the visible church. And he as an individual was torn off. He departed from us because he was not of us. He was not a believer 
the invisible element was not there. The decree of God was that he would not be saved. But he received power from the root. People can come into the visible church and not believe and have Holy Spirit powers. They can have power from the Holy Spirit. Like Judas. Like those that talk to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and prophesy in your name, right? And do many marvelous works in your name. And he says to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, right? That's the illegal use of the law. You point to good works for your justification, you are damned because your good works are not good enough. You need the works of Jesus Christ. But he gives power to do work. And even those who preach hypocritically, Paul rejoices over because the preaching is powerful to save some, even when it's done hypocritically. Were there any souls brought to the Lord by Judas in his hypocritical prophesying? And so this olive tree, the visible church, receives power from the root. And it's visibly holy. It's set apart from the world. Do not boast against the branches, but if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Right? Christ brings you into the church, and Christ supports you. When you see others fall away as a group or as individuals, you should be humbled by it. You should think about the goodness of God to save you, and you should think about the severity of God in bringing curse. He will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Natural branches. Why are they natural branches? Because Abraham was in the covenant before them. Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes. Do you have parents that were in the church? Were you baptized as a child? Don't be haughty. You are a natural branch. But natural branches have been torn off the tree before. Were you a convert later in life that was not raised in the faith and you've been baptized and you've covenanted and think, look at these people who just expect it all because they've been here forever. Don't be haughty. You too can fall. Instead, recognize that what you have is from God. It's not of your own power. And if you have faith, it's a gift of Christ and He sustains you. You don't sustain Him. This language is designed not to give you a strong sense of the purpose-driven life that if you don't do things, God won't accomplish His mission. This is designed to let you know God will accomplish His mission regardless of what you do. He does not need you. But you do have the opportunity of joining into His service and being a part of the victorious army For did God not spare the natural branches? He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. 
if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. Somebody who denies the faith, somebody who is excommunicated, somebody who leaves, they can, if they repent, if they don't continue in unbelief, they can be grafted in again. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Right? The, the cultivation, as opposed to the wildness, is the idea of the Word of God and the ordinances, the commandments of God that help to order it. That You think about a, a tree that just kind of grows up in the wild and it can be all gnarly and weird and, and grow in all sorts of random ways as opposed to one where it's attached to a rod to help it to grow straight and perhaps is pruned and, and is cared for so as to manage its shape so that there's a greater beauty to it. The nations that are coming in, they are wild and they have, they have false law and false doctrine that govern the thoughts and behaviors of that people. To some extent, because of the fact that they can't depart too far from the order that God has created, there are limits on their rebellion unless they destroy themselves. And there are also, because of the image of God, they are incapable of continuing on in thinking and speaking and doing without some level of coherence. And so there are limits on the disobedience because of rationality and the order, the structure that God has placed in things. And so when we look at the work of God in these wild olive trees and then bringing them in and causing them to be attached to the olive tree. Would it be any more radical to take the cultivated and graft it back on? This happens on an individual level where people are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord and they depart from the faith and they come back later in life. This happens at a corporate level when nations apostatize and repent. And it can happen to religious bodies. Verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Right? What's a mystery? Every time you see mystery in the Bible, you should understand that a mystery is not something that's ununderstandable. A mystery is something that was once hidden that has now been revealed. Once hidden, that has now been revealed. This is, some people will try to say there's the mystery of the Trinity, and by that what they mean is that the Trinity is ununderstandable. If the Trinity is not understandable, then it's not a doctrine. The doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery because it was hidden and could not be known apart from special revelation. The mystery of the Gospel was hidden and could not be known apart from special revelation. So we have the things that were hidden that could not be known apart from special revelation. And they have been made known by God, giving propositions to be understood and to be believed. 
if a mystery seems ununderstandable, then first, obviously, you don't understand it. And secondly, maybe you should ask somebody who does. Have them prove to you from the scripture what it is that they are saying. If somebody tells you that the doctrine of the Trinity is not understandable, then they are trying to pass on nonsense. If they tell you that the gospel is a mystery and not understandable, they are trying to pass on nonsense. If it's revealed, it's not ununderstandable. If it's revealed, it's information that can be understood, that it's our duty to believe. So when you see mystery, it's something that was hidden has now been revealed. For I I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be delivered or saved, as it is written. Okay, so here's, here's this mystery is the idea that, and he explains it, right? It's very understandable. Blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until the fullness of the nations have come in to the visible church. When the fullness of the nations have come into the visible church, Israel will be saved, delivered. So the nation of Israel will come back into the visible church. This text doesn't make any sense unless you believe in national covenanting. You, you can't make sense out of the nations coming in, and you can't make sense out of Israel leaving and coming back in without national covenanting. What you have to do is end up with vague ways in which peoples come into the olive tree. Okay? The visible church is a law order institution. The visible church is all those who profess the true religion and their households. Now, those people have a visible holiness, and by profession, what they are doing is they are covenanting to obey and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. They are acknowledging his kingship and his salvation. That is an acknowledgement of allegiance. And baptism is the visible sign of that covenant. Entry in. And the Lord's Supper is the visible sign of recovenanting. Nations don't get to literally be baptized. With the singular exception of Israel when it passed through the Red Sea and got mist all over it. We're told that that was a baptism. Now, we're told to baptize the nations in Matthew 28. Nations don't literally take the Lord's Supper. So, the way nations covenant is by representational acts on behalf of their, by, by their leaders, on behalf of their people. Nations covenant in representational acts by their leaders on behalf of their people. So, our national covenant is the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. So, did you personally 
sign the Constitution or Declaration of Independence? Are you bound by its law order? Notice that it wasn't, there wasn't even people who were alive today, prior generations, and you're bound by its law order. So the idea of the magistrate acknowledging Christ. Now, when did the Jewish magistrates reject Christ? Well, the Sanhedrin, the highest court of Israel, rejected Christ and found him guilty and said he blasphemed when he called himself Christ. They didn't hear a defense. As soon as he said he was, they said, what more do we need to hear? He's claimed to be the Christ. He's blaspheming. Let's punish him. So that's a rejection of the covenant that occurred by the magistrate. So the magistrate acknowledges, and that's a way in which there's a covenanting that occurs. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion. That's from Psalm 14. And He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. Those next three lines are from Isaiah. Two of them are from chapter 59 and one's from chapter 27. So He's saying these doctrines are demonstrable in what was taught in the Old Testament. Concerning the Gospel, verse 28, they are enemies for your sake. So right now, the people of Israel are enemies for the sake of the Gentiles, for the nations, at the time of the writing. But concerning the election, concerning their choice by God to covenant with them, and his intention to save individual Jews in the future, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now think about what's just been said there. When a nation covenants with God, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So when a nation apostatizes, God is going to bring it back. Is that a hopeful view of history? For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them, Israel, all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all Israel. We're going to be saying he's committed all nations to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all nations. But he could also be saying all of Israel in the sense of Israel acting as a corporate group so that Israel can receive mercy as a corporate group, which doesn't mean every single individual. Let me conclude with this doxological statement. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. 
to whom be glory forever. Amen. And so what's being said there is that everything has its origin in God, everything happens by God's power, and everything happens for the purpose of God's glory. <coughs> now, chapter 12 moves into the kind of behavior that is appropriate in the visible church. And this is the kind of behavior that results in nations being transformed because individuals are transformed, households are transformed, local churches are put in good order and are transformed from a disorderly state into an orderly state. And as a result, the civil sphere is put in good order. And so we get to chapter 13, it talks about the, the government again. But in between there, it's going to talk about individuals, and then it's going to go back to individuals, and then we're going to talk about liberty, and it's going to be dealing with it in the context of the church. We're going to talk about the law of God providing that liberty, dealing with each other's weaknesses and burdens, working together to glorify God, and then Paul's effort to go to the nations to evangelize, and then he honors particular individuals. And so what he's doing now is based upon all this doctrine, he's saying, let's now work together in accordance with this doctrine to see what the goal of this doctrine is done. What is the goal of this doctrine? The goal of this doctrine is to have the glory of God, the attributes of God, made known to the nations. And that happens by individuals understanding and believing, by them acting in accordance with it so that their actions are a second testimony and their profession and the communicating of those truths so that there can be a spreading of the knowledge as truth is taught. And so that's laid out here. This is, this is the way that it's done. And so we start into verse 12 and it says, I beseech you therefore, therefore, therefore. You see the word therefore? You're always going to ask, what's it there for? Right? That's not ingrained in your mind. I haven't given you that cheesy line enough because it's extremely profound. Every time you see therefore, it's an argument. Every time you see therefore, it's an argument. How does this conclusion follow? Okay, that's, that's the question to ask. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Because you're guilty, because God has been gracious... You should be grateful. The appropriate response to grace is gratitude. The appropriate response to a gift is thanks. And the way you give thanks to God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, though the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, though, for I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. <coughs> for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, 
and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. (coughs) Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul gets through explaining the gospel, and an avalanche of commands come out of his mouth. His pen is dripping with exhortations to do your duty. This is precept after precept after precept. He's been going through the gospel painstakingly, logically, explaining it. And now the appropriate behavior that follows is just a fire hose of commands. And so the response is to be overwhelmed by all those commands, which is why he gave so much clarity about the gospel before. Over and over again, you've heard me say, justification is by grace alone through faith alone and not by the works of the law. And that way, Paul can give the law undiluted. This giving of the law is to teach us the order. It shows us what is beautiful. And meditating on the law is meditating on beauty. Because the law shows you what is beautiful. We are born with a shallow sense of beauty. We are drawn to things from our very birth. But the law writes into our minds a proper etch of beauty and causes us to see its form for what it is. There are depths of beauty that I can see today that I could not see before. And as I age, I notice more and more often if I stare into the sky that there are dark spots in the periphery of my vision and little places that are not as clear as they once were. And if I refocus, they move. 
And if I try to look too closely, they flee away from the center of my eye. And it's disconcerting. But though my physical eye grow weaker, day by day my spiritual eye grows stronger. And the light is stronger. And the ability to see ugliness for what it is and beauty for what it is. Righteousness and holiness have about them a fragrance that is alluring and sin is repulsive. That as you meditate on the law, you can see it further and further away. Your eyes become the eyes of eagles. And you can spot danger from a distance and give warning to others. And though they look, they will not see it. And you can explain to them where it is. And when they arrive there and when they fall, they will remember you have warned them. But some of them will stay away and avoid the fall. But in either case, the ones who avoid the fall will begin to become more farsighted. And the ones who fall, if they get up again, will also become more farsighted. And the result will be that your farsightedness is put to use to watch for danger to others. And it will help to gather and assemble and bless. The meditation on the law in the context of the gospel, not an illegal use of the law to justify yourself, but a right use of the law to see I'm guilty, I need the grace of God, I'm forgiven in Christ, therefore I ought to apply the law in exhaustive detail. That attitude is the attitude that builds things that last generations. It provides stability that other things cannot. It gives wisdom and order that other things can only dream of. And so that draws people to it. And it makes other nations see the wisdom of the law of God. And it will cause the Jews to be jealous. It is your duty to order your life in a beautiful way. It is your duty to order your home in a beautiful way. Fathers, husbands, it is your duty to wash your wife in the word so that her beauty is an expression to the world of the glorious reign of Christ and what he does with his church. And parents, it is your duty to rule over your children in such a way that they are an expression of that as well. That the care of the church for its members is shown in miniature form. Every station in life is given to reveal something about God. God has made it so that there are young and middle-aged and old. God has caused it so that there are inferiors, equals, and superiors. That there is the household, the church, and the state. That there are offices in those institutions. And that the ordering of those institutions are designed to reveal the glory of God in a particular way that no other institution can do. Without individuals who are well-ordered, there can be no well-ordered households. And without well-ordered households, there are no churches worth going to, and there will be no states worth living in. These things build on each other. Now, the building is first and foremost a building in the soul. And if you are wise, you're wise for yourself. And if you're a fool, you alone will bear it. You are the principal recipient of wisdom or folly. You must pursue it for yourself. 
You must pick up the tools for yourself. You must seek the words of God, and you must eat them. Someone can bring it to you and try to make you eat, and you can chew and chew, and when they walk away, spit it out. You have to understand it and believe it. You have to apply it. You have to look to see how does it connect to other things that have been revealed and to draw out more truth and apply it to the particulars. Now, in the singular providence of God, I have leadership in a number of places simultaneously. It's a blessing. But what is needed cannot be numbered. And what is crooked cannot be made straight. My resources are extended. My family is exhausted. And we get more strength and more resources as time goes on. But I need you because I am not God. And He has made it so that we are dependent upon each other to bless each other and to work together because the division of labor increases what can be accomplished more than the number that's added. Two working together do more than double. You have giftings I do not have. And you will have insights I do not have. And you have insights I do not have. You have particular applications and places that you've had to think. There is a need to see things ordered. And so we have a membership class starting next week. 60 to 90 minutes long. Five times. And that is so that people can knowingly, with understanding, covenant and see the banner of Christ over their head and work together to accomplish things and to see the fruitfulness of the olive tree. There are layers of order and they fit with each other. They support each other. They nourish each other. They are interlocking, but they have distinct spheres. The authority given to each is specific, and the roles of each person is important and differentiated, and they are mutually supporting. The Lord's riches are sufficient to deal with all the problems known and not known. He pours out his spirit into his people, and he has a word that is sufficient, that's been revealed. And the knowledge of that word and the gifting to his people is sufficient to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And to see the church built in splendor. And the result of that is the transformation of things that are not in the church proper. Art that is godly and beautiful gets made the households become more and more little churches. And the state more and more submits to Christ. The church is a house of prayer. And each household becomes a house of prayer. And each of you becomes a house of prayer. This is the process of beautification that comes with the work of the gospel we are used to, in our own culture, 
the idea that history is leading up to a great loss for the church, but then Jesus comes. And that's a lie from the pit of hell that demotivates us and destroys our ability to function well. If an army doesn't think it can win, it doesn't fight. Shirkers increase in number. Disorder increases. And the commanders certainly don't look for opportunities to win fights. If you don't want to be in fights, don't come here. I'm a fighting commander. Because I think we win. And my goal is to order you and put you in battle. Win and do it again with more. There needs to be order. And there need to be people who are committed to that work. The temptation is to hear something like this, to think rah, rah, yes, and then to go home and to not know what to do. You're not going to find this interesting for long if you aren't studying. And if you're not trying to apply it. And as you try to apply it, here's what happens. You get into a place where something hard happens and something that you love all of a sudden is something you have to give up And so you then are confronted with, which do I love more? The truth, the cause of God and truth, and the fruits of righteousness. Or do I love this thing? And so, studying is a weariness, and wisdom brings suffering. And maybe I'll come back to this later. If you don't push through then, there, Who knows if there will be a later? Your duty is to push through then and there. You know what the household is? The household is an organization that makes it so there's a father and a mother who are working together to see that done in that house and to see the children ordered there. And as the children are taught, they become an external conscience. And as an external conscience, they tell you, didn't you say this? Why are we doing that? And so that little unit is a unit that works together to push each other to fight. To fight the flesh, to fight the world, to fight the devil. So that organization, the more your home is a little church, the more it will be effective in advancing, and the more that church as a whole will advance. Fighting alone is hard. If you're single, get married. But until then, spend time with other believers. And if you have a home... It's a lot easier to be hospitable in the division of labor. If you have a home, be hospitable. If you have a home, be hospitable. Help those. We have families here and we have single people here. Invite single people into the house. Engage with them. Disciple them. Help them to find a godly spouse. These are, this, is what, this is what Christian community looks like. It's a fighting camp. And we're helping each other to move on and to go to the next objective. So our next objective, we need an additional elder, but we need a diaconate. So we need more men who are desirous to lead. We need more men who are willing to work. 
and we need wives that are willing to support them and to submit to them. And we need children that are willing to learn in submission to their parents. Those are the things that are needful. And it's beautiful. Do you find obedience in children to be noxious? Do you find a wife supporting their husband and obediently seeking to work with their husband to be ugly? Do you see men trying to bear responsibility and lead in a sacrificial way to be disgusting? Even those who say they do are lying. It's beautiful to everybody. And that's the beauty of the church. It's glorious. And it's done on a micro scale of the individual and the household, and it's done in the church, and that blows up to the nations. Everybody wants to save the world. Nobody wants to help mom do the dishes. But kids, that's how you save the world. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members, and those with speaking rights. Mr. Cordova? Thank you for that teaching, uh, uh, Just going back really quick, uh, verse 33 forward, there's a doxological statement made in chapter 11 there. Uh, would you mind just giving the main points of that statement? Yeah, so 33 through 36 of chapter 11, the main points of that statement, it's a doxological statement. So it's saying, oh, the depths, both of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So it's, it's deep and rich. Right? So there's a lot of space that it fills. There's a lot of information, and the information is dense. And the idea is that God's wisdom and knowledge are deep and rich. And so he has this knowledge, and he gives it to us. And so Paul, having gotten this mystery, having gotten this hidden knowledge that's now been given publicly to the church, he is going, whoa, this is, you know, mind-blowing emoji type of stuff. And so, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out? We couldn't find this out on our own. It depends upon special revelation, his plan for history. And that's because you can't make God tell you stuff, and you can't tell God what to do. And we don't give to God without God providing and God never owes us anything that's the idea there so then we're told that God is the origin of all things and God is the effectual cause of all things and God is the ultimate cause of all things and then there's a statement that he should be glorified forever so him be glory forever Um, and so that idea is these truths about God are a part of his glory and so his glory the fact that he is wise that he is powerful that he is above the creature those are things that should be acknowledged forever that's his that's the point there thank you thank you Mr. Nye I'm sure you're teaching I have a couple of questions Um, you mentioned when you were speaking about the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, um, you said that we are bound to 
are bound by that law, or uh, could you maybe explain what you mean by that? Yeah, the Declaration of Independence as a charter of the country acknowledges a set of states that are unified in an action, there's a legal joint action, and so there's a continuing body there. Um, the Constitution is a, uh, is a reordering from the Articles of Confederation of the law order of that union, and uh, to the extent to which those things are consonant with the Word of God, they are binding to uh, future generations. And so the issue is that there, the Constitution, thankfully, has a regulative principle written into it. Uh, article, or sorry, Amendment 9 and Amendment 10 list out the idea that the rights that are listed, and Amendment 9 says the rights that are listed are, are not to be used as a limiter for the rights of the people. And Amendment 10 says any things that are not listed in the Constitution as powers uh, for the federal government are to be reserved to the states and to the people respectively depending on what's appropriate to them. And so it's acknowledging a source of rights beyond the Constitution. The Declaration of Independence explicitly acknowledges that. The Declaration of Independence explicitly acknowledges God as the originator of rights, for human rights, and his law. And we, in the Constitution, it refers to the year of our Lord and also refers to the year of independence of the United States and so acknowledges the lawfulness of the Declaration of Independence as originating the Union. And so those things show a continuation of law order. Amendment 7 refers to common law, which is Christian law, and depends upon the general equity of God's law. So those are the things in it that help it. So it's, there are elements of it that are lawful um, that we can uh, look to and say there's elements of, of covenant here that uh, are binding. Thank you. And then one uh, final, actually, a request. Um, Verses um, 16 of uh, chapter 11, verses 16 through essentially verses 24, I think um, I think with with someone having a maybe a, a rather new understanding of the Christian faith, and especially if you read that, like applying to the invisible church as opposed to the visible church, which I think as evangelicals we're prone to do. Um, I think it, it, this passage here can be, I think there's there's language that can, that can um, insinuate that, that after someone believes they can fall away or lose their salvation, they can be plucked out uh, even after believing. I, I think for the sake I would like to request if you could like maybe speak to that as to um, that concern that might arise from that. Sure. The concern is that it might be easy for someone to misread chapter 11, verses 16 through 24 of Romans. Um, chapter 11, verses 16 to 24. Um, that someone could misread that and view that as teaching that somebody can be saved and then lose their salvation. And so the scriptures are very clear, including the book of Romans, that that's not the case. Right? Chapter 8 of Romans teaches that everybody who uh, is given faith is, is justified. Right? And, so, and then it teaches that everybody who's justified is going to be glorified. And so it teaches the perseverance of the saints. And 
And so the idea that you can be given faith and then lose it is contradictory with the teaching of Scripture. And so this text is not teaching that somebody can come into the invisible church, can, can become a true believer and then lose their salvation. It is teaching that you can make a profession or you can be born into a covenantal house and be a part of the visible church and then be torn out of the visible church. And so being the visible church is all those who profess the true religion and their households. And the invisible church is all those who believe or will believe the gospel. And those groups, though there is large overlap, are not the same thing. Because I think I've been emphasizing that in the past weeks. And so hopefully that's clear. Thank you very much. That's, that's very helpful. Great. Okay. So on uh, port, uh, 12, 14, I believe. Yeah, it says, bless those that persecute you and do not curse. Uh, what point do you not bless those that persecute you and you go to war, like the Vi- with the Vikings and the Christians, or like the Reconquistador, or the Crusades, or and stuff like that? So, at what point do you not bless those who are persecuting you and you, like, fight back? Thank you. Um, okay, so the question is, how, how do you choose when to bless or when to persecute? Uh, when the chapter 12, verse 14, uh, says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And so, is that universally a command? There are no exceptions to it. Um, so, there are, there's literal blessing with the mouth and prayer. And then there's blessing that's material, like James talks about how we should pray for what we actually believe and we should act in accordance with that. And so telling somebody who's hungry and naked, be warmed and be filled, but then not giving them food or clothing would not really be blessing them. And so we can apply this to action. So the idea is for those, um, there, are, there are qualifications that people need to meet in order to be worthy recipients of charity um, or to be people that you should continue to bless with employment or that you should uh, you know, continue to bless as being members of your household or, or church or of the state. Okay? So to qualify to continue to be a member of a state, you, should need, you need to be somebody who's not committing capital crimes. Right? So at that point, you need to curse them in the sense of giving external punishment. Right? Um, and if they're committing lesser crimes, you're, you're giving them external curses in the sense of of pain um, and so we, with the, the church you know you call curse on people when they're in unrepentant public sin and you call you literally call curse on them when you have to communicate them okay and we're commanded to do that we're told to do that in specific instances uh, the kicking of dust off the feet is a symbol of cursing um, when you uh, when you lawfully divorce somebody or disinherit somebody uh, you're, you're, you're doing the same sort of thing and um, with individuals, uh, you, you have a duty to use violence against individuals to defend yourself when they're attacking you, right? So the law as a whole is going to teach us about all of these exceptions. And the book of Psalms calls us to, to sing and call down curse, and pray curses in, in situations. So I would think you, you really, that's actually, that's a very complex question because there's so many examples, but I gave you a bunch of examples there. Just warfare 
is in the Bible, so examining a particular war and whether it's just or not. We'll be doing that in some detail when we get to chapter 13. And so uh, give me two, three weeks, and we'll talk about just warfare in more detail. Uh, but in short, yes, there is a time to curse, um, and that cursing is defined by the word of God. This is the general rule, and you need to have justification for not following the general rule. And that general rule needs to not be self-vengeance-seeking. You are not authorized to seek vengeance for yourself. And so what Genesis, what Romans 13 teaches us is that God has appointed the civil magistrate to take vengeance. So there's an orderly mechanism. God says vengeance is mine. He doesn't say vengeance is evil. He says vengeance against evil is just and righteous. And he, to preserve order, he has appointed the public authority of the magistrate to administer vengeance. Um, and so we'll talk about that more, but that's a good question. If you have any more, we can also talk about it later, but hopefully I'll be teaching on it more publicly there.